In J.R.R. Tolkien's Return of the King, the hobbit Mary is riding into a terrible battle against the evil forces of Sauron. And he's riding with a soldier named Dernhelm, who wears a helmet that covers his face. Dernhelm's king, Theoden, has just fallen in battle, and he's vulnerable to attack. And the leader of Sauron's forces, the sinister and faceless lord of the Nazgul, seizes this opportunity. Riding a monstrous winged beast, he descends upon Theoden's position. Now it is prophesied that the lord of the Nazgul cannot be killed by the hand of man, and he has come to slay Dernhelm's king. The descent of the Nazgul causes Dernhelm's horse to bolt, throwing he and Mary to the ground. And Mary crawls about in a daze of thick darkness for a moment. And Tolkien writes, Then, out of the blackness in his mind, he thought that he heard Dernhelm speaking. Yet now the voice seemed strange, recalling some other voice that he had known. Be gone, Lord of Carrion, leave the dead in peace. A cold voice answered, Come not between the Nazgul and his prey, or he will not slay thee in thy turn. He will bear thee away to the houses of lamentation, beyond all darkness, where thy flesh shall be devoured, and thy shriveled mind be left naked to the lidless eye. A sword rang as it was drawn. Do what you will, but I will hinder it if I may. Hinder me, thou fool? No living man may hinder me. Then Mary heard of all sounds in that hour the strangest. It seemed that Dernhelm laughed, and the clear voice was like the ring of steel. But no living man am I. You look upon a woman. Eowyn I am, Eowman's daughter. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone if you be not deathless. For living or dark undead, I will smite you if you touch him. Now, when I read our passage from Judges, I can't help but think of this glorious surprise in Tolkien's novel, and I kind of wonder if Tolkien himself had it in mind as he wrote. See, contrary to popular misconception, the Bible does not portray women as being meek and mild, as helpless victims or bystanders in the great war. Rather, from the beginning, the woman has been enlisted in the battle against the serpent. And we see that conflict play out over and over again in Scripture. Nowhere do we see it more powerfully portrayed than here in Judges chapter 4. So let me pray for us as we turn there together. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. With his dying breath, Joshua says to the sons of Israel, Choose this day whom you will serve. If you cling to Yahweh, he will drive out the nations before you. If not, these nations will become a snare and a trap for you, a whip and a thorn, and you will perish in the land. The book called Judges begins at this point. The land is still filled with Canaanites. Joshua has died. Will Israel choose the old gods or the new? Will a new Joshua rise up to deliver them? 
Well, Judges 2 answers our questions. Judges 2, verse 10. And all that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Now this reminds us of Israel's situation back in Egypt before the Exodus. It's as if the Exodus has been reversed. Israel, who once plundered the Egyptians, are now given over to plunderers in Canaan. The God who had freed Israel from Egyptian slavery now sells them into the hand of their enemies. The God who led them out in a pillar of fire no longer goes before them. It's as if the exodus has been undone. Yet, just as he did at the time of the exodus, God hears the lamentations of his people and he sends them a Moses. Judges 2, verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, in our day, we, we think of judges as those who preside over court cases, and the biblical judges did some of that, but primarily the judges in the Bible are known for saving God's people through warfare. They are new Joshuas seeking to continue the work of the conquest. And God sends these judges to save Israel from their oppressors, just as he sent Moses to deliver Israel from Egyptian slavery. But just as they did in Moses' day, the people of Israel still rebel. Judges 2.17 goes on, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So you can see that cycle already, right? It's the definition of the phrase, a vicious cycle. That's what the book of Judges is. It is this cycle of rebellion, judgment, lamentation, deliverance. Rebellion, judgment, lamentation, deliverance repeated over and over again. Judges is what would happen if Johnny Cash wrote modern worship music, right? So we're going to preach on a couple of these cycles over the next few weeks. And time would fail me to tell of the first three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. But that's three cycles right there. Rebellion, judgment, lamentation, and deliverance. And that brings us to cycle number four, which happens to begin in Judges chapter four. And Judges chapter four, verse one reads, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. So first we meet the villains of the story. You've got Jabin. He's the king of Canaan. He's like the pharaoh of the land. He has many chariots. 
He oppresses Israel. But we deal with him mostly through his right-hand man in this story, which is the commander of his army, Sisera. Sisera is more directly involved in the action here. So these are the bad guys, King Jabin and his general, Sisera. And I also want you to see that the land of Canaan is a, like a new Eden. It is a garden that God has planted, and through Joshua's conquest, God has set his son Israel in the midst of the garden. Israel's to take dominion there. So that makes King Jabin the serpent. He seeks to snatch the garden from Israel. And Sisera is his right hand. He's the seed of the serpent. If Israel is to dwell in the garden, someone has to stomp that snake. Now we see the cycle here in these first few verses of chapter 4. The judge dies. Israel rebels. So God punishes them. And then the people cry out to him for deliverance. So that means we should expect to see another judge rise up. And we have the pleasure of meeting her in verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, a woman of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. Her name is Deborah, a name shared with a number of godly women near and dear to our hearts here. It is the Hebrew word for bee, B-E-E. And we will see that as one commentator remarked, she has honeyed wisdom for her friends and a stinger for her enemies. She's described as a prophetess. That means she received and delivered words from the Lord, words of wisdom and counsel, words of rebuke and judgment, words of hope and encouragement for the sons of Israel. Again, this makes Deborah a type of Moses. She is both deliverer and prophet. Now, there's only four prophetesses that appear throughout the Old Testament, and only one appears prior to Deborah. Can you think who it was? In Exodus 15, that title is ascribed to Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron. And so the author of Judges wants us to think back to Miriam and parallel these two women, and we'll see some of those parallels as we go on. So Deborah is a prophetess. Then we're told that she is a woman of Lapidoth. Now, Hebrew doesn't have a word that distinguishes between woman and wife. You just have to base it on the context. So it could be saying that Deborah was the wife of a man named Lapidoth, or it could be saying that Deborah was a woman from a town named Lapidoth. We don't know which it is. The Bible never mentions that name uh, again. But the point being made is that Deborah is a woman. And actually, it's even more emphatic in the Hebrew, which repeats the word woman twice. The Hebrew of verse 4 is literally, and Deborah, a woman, a prophetess, a woman of Lapidoth, she was judging Israel. It seems the author wants to make a point of this because it was unusual for women to rule in Israel. Uh, Deborah is the only female judge in the Bible. After this time, Israel is always ruled by kings, the one exception being the one-year reign of the wicked queen, Athaliah. So the author highlights her gender here, uh, not because there was anything wrong with having a female judge, the Bible never says that, but just because it was uncommon. Deborah is a woman, she's a prophetess, she's a woman of Lapidoth, and she is judging Israel at that time. Verse 5 says, She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim 
and the people of Israel came to her for a judgment. Notice how it's the palm of Deborah. She's identified with the tree. Psalm 1 and Psalm 92 say that the righteous person is like a tree planted by streams of water. And Deborah is that kind of a tree. She's soaked in the life-giving waters of God's word. And she's bearing fruit that helps all those around her. Now, we're told that Deborah is a woman, but it's not clear whether she was married or if she had children of her own. We're not told that. However, Deborah is a mother symbolically. Symbolically, she is a mother to all of Israel, and she says so herself. If you just glance down at chapter 5, you will see that Deborah sings a song. Just as the prophetess Miriam sings a song of victory in Exodus 15 after God delivers his people through the Red Sea, so the prophetess Deborah sings a song of victory after, spoiler alert, God delivers his people from King Jabin. They, both prophetesses sing a song of deliverance. And in that song, chapter 5, verse 7, Deborah says, I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Deborah acts as a mother to Israel. She does what mothers do. She nurtures, she teaches, she helps her children to mature. And she's also a mama bear when she needs to be. So don't mess with her cubs. This bee has a sharp sting. Deborah is a woman. Deborah is a mother. I've already pointed out how the land is a new Eden. We are to see Deborah as a kind of Eve, as mother of all the living. And there's a snake in the grass, isn't there? Deborah is trying to raise her children in this garden, but Jabin, the snake king, wants to devour them. Well, this is the way it's been since the fall. Remember what God said to the serpent back in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Since the beginning, the serpent has been at war with the woman. The serpent is trying to devour her sons. But God promises that one of the woman's sons will bruise the serpent's head, a fatal wound for a snake. So the woman's calling is to bring forth this promised seed and to then protect and preserve the promised seed so that he can grow up and vanquish the serpent. He is the woman's son, and he is also her savior. And that's what we see the women of Scripture doing throughout the story. That is what the great mothers of Israel do. This also shows Deborah to be another Miriam. Remember that Miriam helped to protect the promised deliverer Moses when serpent Pharaoh tried to kill all the Hebrew boys. Or you can think of Mary in the New Testament as she takes the baby Jesus and flees from the serpent Herod. The woman must birth and protect the promised seed so that the line of promise can continue, so that one day Jesus can be born so that the promised seed can one day crush the serpent. And so this age-old struggle is being played out here in Judges chapter 4. Jabin is the serpent. Deborah is the woman. Jabin has a kind of seed, his right-hand man, Sisera, 
But Deborah, the woman, has a son of her right hand, too. In verse 6, Deborah summons Barak, the son of Abinoam. Now, he's not Deborah's biological son, but she is a mother to him nonetheless. She teaches and counsels and encourages him to trust the Lord. And this is the beautiful thing about the family of God, isn't it? You can be a brother and a sister to people who are not your blood. You can be a mother or father to children you didn't birth. Because God is all of our father. Christ is our brother. And so he calls us to mother and to brother and father and sister and son and daughter, everyone in his church. That's what Deborah does for Barak and for the rest of the sons of Israel. Verse 6, Deborah sent and summoned Barak and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. So now we're seeing Deborah in her prophetess role, right? Yahweh has spoken a word, and she delivers this word to Barak. Through her, the Lord tells Barak how he is going to defeat the enemy. And so you see now the mother raising up the son to obey the call of the Lord, encouraging him. Verse 8, Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now Deborah, Deborah promises to go with Barak and serve in his war council, but she also prophesies something Barak might not have expected. Though he will be the one leading the army, he will not be the one to defeat Jabin's commander, Sisera. He will not get that glory. That glory will go to someone else. It will go to a woman. Now, as prophecies often are, this one is vague. Deborah doesn't say how this will come about or who this woman will be. The point is that Sisera will not be defeated by Israel's commander, nor even by one of the soldiers of Israel, as you might expect. No, Sisera, to quote Tolkien, you look upon a woman. So, Deborah goes with Barak as he musters the troops of Israel, and they march to Mount Tabor as God has commanded. And verses 12 through 16 tell us that the Lord did fight for Israel. Barak and his men routed Sisera and his army, even with all their chariots. The defeat is so overwhelming that Sisera gets down from his chariot and he flees away on foot and Barak pursues him. So again, we see the God of the Exodus defeating an army of chariots by the power of his word and through the faithfulness of his people. So verse 17 tells us, Sisera fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin the king and the house of Heber the Kenite. Now, what you need to understand about this Heber guy uh, is what is revealed back in verse 11. Heber was of the Kenite people, but he had separated himself from them. And that's significant because the Kenites are relatives of Moses by marriage. Hobab, who is also called Jethro, he had brought these Kenite people to join Moses after the Exodus, and they were with Israel and living among Israel. 
But this Kenite, Heber, had separated from Israel. Instead, he has aligned himself with Jabin, the servant king. So Jabin's commander, Sisera, thinks, well, this is a safe place to hide here among the camp of Heber. No man can touch him here. No man. But Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say, No. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now, I know it probably turns your stomach a bit to imagine this, but the biblical author is not telling you this for the shock value. There are larger biblical themes at work here. What did God promise in Genesis 3? The promised seed will crush the head of the serpent. Now, Jael is not the final promised seed. She's not even an Israelite as far as we know. But she acts in that capacity here. She attacks the head of the serpent in order to deliver God's people. And she also displays another prominent theme of Scripture. Remember that in the beginning, the serpent deceived Eve. But now in the rest of the story, we see the woman deceiving the serpent. Throughout the Bible... When the seed is threatened by a tyrant, the woman's only recourse is deception. Let's think of some examples. God said that Jacob was to receive the blessing, but Isaac planned to give it to Esau instead. So Rachel deceives Isaac into blessing Jacob. Tamar deceives Judah so that his son's line will not be cut off, the line which eventually gives birth to King David. Pharaoh commands the Hebrew midwives to kill the sons of the Hebrew women. Instead, they deceive him, and Israel is saved. We already mentioned Miriam and Moses' mother, who deceive Pharaoh to save Moses and have him raised up right under Pharaoh's nose. We saw a few weeks ago, Rahab deceived the men of Jericho in order to save the Israelite spies. And there are many more examples later in Scripture. But the theme is clear. When the tyrant serpent threatens the promised seed, the woman's only recourse is deception. She must lie to the serpent in order to obey the word of God. And so Jael follows this same course, and she takes a great risk here. She goes against all kinds of cultural norms and expectations in doing this. She violated the covenant her husband had foolishly made with Jabin, the oppressor of Israel, she violated the sacred guest rights of the ancient world by attacking someone who had sought shelter under her roof. She puts herself at great peril, and for no apparent reason other than the salvation of the people of Israel. Judges portrays Jael as following a higher law, 
And so she steps into the role of the true woman, true mother of Israel. When the serpent slithers into her nest, she crushes his head. Verse 23 tells us, So on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin. Israel is taking dominion of the garden. Now, we don't have time to go deep into chapter 5 today, but chapter 5 is that song of thanksgiving and praise to God sung by the new Miriam, Deborah, and by Barak. They sing of how Deborah, the mother of Israel, raised up the sons of Israel to fight boldly against the serpent. They tell of how Barak subdued the army of Sisera and took them captive. And they sing, Most blessed of women be jail, of tent-dwelling women most blessed in honor of her head-crushing actions. And that song even has this catchy chorus. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. Johnny Cash ain't got nothing on Deborah. We sang this in the kids' uh, singing time this morning. And I don't, one of the boys said, I like this song. <laughs> this is the story of Judges 4 and 5. It is a strange story. It is a violent story. But it is a scriptural story through and through. From Genesis to Revelation, we read of the war between the serpent and the woman, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. All along, we read stories of godly women who give their lives to protect God's people. We read of mothers in the faith who cling fast to God's word above all else. Women who devote themselves to raising up sons and daughters in Christ who are prepared to join the fray. These women are wise and compassionate, but they are fierce as well. They are not afraid to stomp a serpent when it slithers into their nest. We are blessed to have godly women like this in our church, I think. We should encourage and support and listen to them. And we should all seek to disciple our daughters in Christ in this same path. But we must also remember that these women served a larger purpose. From Genesis 3, the woman is called to the battle, but she knows it is her offspring that will deal the final blow. All these women were protecting the seed, protecting the line of promise in order that the Redeemer would be born. A Redeemer who would not only be their son, but their Savior. In the Gospel accounts, we find Mary, the new Eve, the greater mother. Like Jael, she is called most blessed of women. All generations call her blessed. Like Deborah, she receives a word from the Lord and holds fast to it. Like Deborah, Mary sings a song of praise. That was our gospel reading this morning, and it's the basis for the first hymn that we sung, Tell Out My Soul. Like Deborah, Mary sings a song of praise to God because he has heard the lamentation of his people, and he has brought them a head crusher to deliver them. But Mary's song is different. 
Because Mary knows that the son given her is not just another iteration of that promised line. Her son is conceived by the Holy Spirit, the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the offspring of the woman prophesied in Genesis 3. Mary is the mother of the true Israelite. And so she sings her song and she treasures these things in her heart. She deceives the serpent by sealing her son away to Egypt and to Nazareth. She nurtures and raises him in the faith. She sings him the war psalms of Israel. And all in complete anonymity until the day of battle comes. And then she bears witness to his glory as her son becomes her savior. And what of her son, Jesus? He is the better Deborah. He is both judge and prophet. He is the better Barak, obedient to his father's word. He joyfully steps into a battle in which he seems hopelessly outnumbered. The devil and his armies arrayed against him, venom dripping from their fangs. But Jesus is also the greater jail. He draws the serpent in. He even allows the serpent to not only bruise his heel, but to torture and crucify him. And the serpent believes he has won. He believes he has cut off the seed line once and for all. But then, on Sunday morning, the stone is rolled away and it's like it rolls right over the serpent's tail. And when the resurrected Lord steps out of the tomb, it is a step planted firmly on the serpent's head, grinding him into the dirt. And God's people sing. He crushed his head. Between his feet he sank, he fell, he lay still. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. The tyrant has been deceived. The serpent did not know. The nails which pierced the hands and feet of Jesus would actually be the tent peg which shattered and pierced the serpent's temple. So let us continue to worship our Redeemer this morning. Let us offer ourselves willingly on the day of battle. Let us join in his victory feast. Let us sing songs of thankfulness and praise to him. And let us go out boldly from this place as the saints of old, trusting that our God has gone before us, that he will go before us now and forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, you nurtured and raised up your people Israel. Despite their sin and failure, you sent judges to deliver them. Despite our sin and failure, you have sent the greater judge, your son Jesus, to be our deliverer. Grant us faith in the face of fear, strength in our weakness, to follow our brother and our king. In the name of Jesus and by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.